large crowds were traveling with Jesus, turning to him, to them he said, whoever comes to me and doesn't hate father and mother, spouse and children, and brothers and sisters, yes, even one's own life, cannot be my disciple. Whoever doesn't carry their own cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. If one of you wanted to build a tower, wouldn't you first sit down and calculate the cost to determine whether you have enough money to complete it? Otherwise, when you have laid the foundation but couldn't finish the tower, all who see it will begin to belittle you. They will say, here's the person who began construction and couldn't complete it. Or what king would go to war against another king without first sitting down to consider whether his 10,000 soldiers could go up against the 20,000 coming against him? And if he didn't think he could win, he would not send a representative to discuss terms of peace while his enemy was still a long way off. In the same way, none of you who are unwilling to give up all of your possessions can be my disciple. This is the word of the Lord. Y'all pray with me. Uh, Lord Jesus, your um, word is sharp and alive. Uh, It speaks comfort and it speaks challenge. Um, uh, Open uh, my uh, lips that my mouth might declare your praise and open all of our ears that we might hear what you have to say to us in this word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I'm sure by now y'all, if you're anything like me, you have these recurring news items that frequently show up in whatever kind of feed or way that you get your news sources. And um, some you can just kind of shake off, like when they rank and re-rank United States colleges, you know, like that that's a recurring thing. I'm such a sucker and I always click on it anyways, even though like it's not really that important unless you're like actively in the process of sending your child to college, which we have some time on that. And you take a glance and you see if your alma mater slid up or down or if you're like still above your rival. And if you're not, man, forget that list. It doesn't matter, right? Um, and, and really those lists, it's just like five to eight Ivy League schools alternating the top spots anyways, or Ivy League type schools, right? Um, so I can kind of, I can kind of like, tune that out, um, shake that off. Or like the other uh, recurring thing are the list about best places to live and they always try to grab clicks by putting like kind of a shocker weirdo place. Like we all know it would be like Honolulu or like something like that, right? But they'll put like Fayetteville, Arkansas is the best place to live, right? no, No shade on Fayetteville, Arkansas, right? But I can normally shake that off too because after all, there is actually no place that's named RDU, right? We might be in the top 10, but RDU is an airport. Raleigh-Durham with a hyphen is not a place. Raleigh is a place, and Durham is not a place, is a place, but together they are not a place. So it's easy to shake these things off, but I'll tell you the sort of news that is recurring over the last few years that really has me shook, <laughs> mostly since I've been a dad over the last eight or so years, or the recurring metric of how much it's going to cost to raise a child uh, in their like 
zero to 18 years old. And it always goes up. It never goes down, right? It was like a quarter million dollars per kid. And I have four kids and I don't make a million dollars. This is so scary. It's got me shaken up. Like I can hear my own dad say things like, do you think that money grows on trees? And I say my own version of these things, especially. Um, and like, I think it was, I, I skipped by this, like the other things until I started having kids. Cause, cause you know, you kind of have to confront and count the cost of quote doing business here. Right. And I'll tell you, it is steep. Um, these kids say they, they dictate, and, and this is just my little rant, like side path here for a second. These kids, they dictate so many decisions in our lives about housing and work and food and school and leisure time and vocations and sleep. <laughs> And only a fraction of these things actually have a price tag. So I actually think they underestimate probably the cost of doing business with kids, right? Uh, that's a scary thought. I feel like kids, um, the, this price on kids actually completely under and simultaneously overestimates the cost, right? Because some of these are hidden. Their price is way too high because, um, come on, they're just kids. Like they can just eat some of my food, right? But they're also way too low because they completely change your life. All the time and creativity and sweat equity and, quote, loss opportunity that kids create for you or take from you. It's possible, I think, for something to both be simultaneously radically too cheap and radically too expensive at the same time. Uh, I think that's, that's what I've come to on this. So I'm not just complaining here. Th there's a point to all this. I think. The answer is always and only yes, that something can be way too expensive and way too cheap at the same time. So today, we come to Jesus' address to the large crowds that he was starting to draw in our lectionary reading from Luke 14. It seems that what Christ was saying and doing was starting to really pique the interest of a lot of people. And I think it's telling how Jesus responds. For all Jesus' mercy and kindness, he doesn't quite do what we might expect someone in that situation to say or do, rather than continue to like build momentum or like rapport or to draw these newbies into something gradually steeper and deeper into commitment. Jesus just springs it all on them, right, all at the same time. His message is about counting the steep cost of the kingdom, and he tells this message three ways. He, he, he uses uh, a, a short story about family, a short story about construction, and a short story about war. And I wonder if these three illustrations are kind of scattershot, right? Like this is the world's most boring Venn diagram because none of these really intersect, you know? And so he's just saying it in a few different ways, hoping that in this crowd, someone's going to fall into one of those three buckets, right? Just about everyone will understand whether you're a family type that isn't necessarily like an architect, laborer, entrepreneur type, and then you're probably also not in charge of a war, right? Um, Jesus is covering his bases. He's trying very hard to communicate to his crowd. Maybe it's helpful also for us to see ourselves in maybe one or several of these types, to hear Jesus' call to count the cost in the coming kingdom against some of the things that are most likely to stunt our imaginations. So first, the family ties section. 
Jesus seems to immediately, his mind goes right away to, like, quote, focus on the family, but not in a way that would really please James Dobson, right? We're told, Jesus says, whoever comes to me and doesn't hate his father and mother, spouse and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even one's own life cannot be my disciple. That's rough. That makes for a really challenging Thanksgiving meal together. Who doesn't hate father and mother, spouse and children, brothers and sisters? Some of us might even relish this command a little too much, right? Jesus giving us permission. This statement seems like it's supposed to be like hard and jarring, a little callous seeming even. The cr- those crowded around Jesus are being confronted that life in the kingdom of God is going to require them to reorder their social lives in the bonds that they're connected with. That's, that's where, th- I, don't, I don't know if this is an active uh, saying mean things hate, but this is a despising in, uh, in relation to the things that we normally hold as, as comfort or that hold us back or that make us feel safe. This means that while blood is important, it is not ultimate in that a family, king, like a kingdom family, is much more predicated on the blood of Jesus and on the waters of baptism and on our sharing in Christ's body than on things like DNA or affinity or even comfort. This is a hard word. Uh, Jesus is wide-eyed and honest to the ways that some of our most long-running and intimate relationships might get in the way, might keep us from following Jesus. This is a daring call to hold family in such a way that actually creates more family. It doesn't close us down, but it opens us up. It creates more family, not less. And in so doing, it grafts us into God's family. That, that's some of the work that we're doing when we eat potluck together is is. Um, priming our muscles, like working our social muscles so that we uh, can, can talk to and share with and, and be with people who aren't necessarily like us. So take that as a challenge when you go downstairs. Don't immediately find, if you're a grad student, another grad student that you can talk grad student stuff with, or if you're a family, another family that you can talk family stuff with and commiserate like I was doing earlier. Find someone that's not like you. Because this is a pretty safe place still, but we do have some difference. And if this could be a school for how to, to, to operate with and, and um, flex some of those muscles in a, in a more graceful and beautiful way uh, across difference, we, we can do that in our neighborhoods. We can do that in our places of employment. We can do that wherever God's putting us. Uh, there's, there's something about a fitness that um, requires us to be strong enough um, so that, that we don't have to be constantly um, uh, aware of how hard we're working, right? Like when, when you first start lifting weights and you're not in shape, you're aware of every ounce of weight that you're pushing. But as your body gets stronger and as things start to stabilize more, I- you realize things are easier and, and you're much more agile. And I think the same happens with our table fellowship. Uh, we get better at it and it's, it's less draining, it's less trying, and we can actually uh, grow into this sort of kinship. It, it's the cross, though, that creates this possibility. Jesus goes from hating your family to bearing your cross. 
knows this is hard, but also that this embrace of risk and mystery and sacrifice yields freedom and family and forgiveness. The cross is how we become disciples, and it's how we're shaped in the ways of Jesus. Diedrich Bonhoeffer puts it this way, that Christianity without this kind of discipleship, becoming apprentices of Jesus, is always Christianity without Christ. That, that Christ's own life is his very call to become disciples, to bear the cross. I remember, related to my own family and my own discipleship journey, uh, I grew up in the Catholic Church, uh, a very happy and healthy Catholic. Uh, in Catholic school, I could say, basically say Mass while, by the time I was in the seventh grade because I was an altar boy. And I would get pulled out of class and given $5 by Italian Catholic families to serve funerals in the middle of the day. And then I'd go back to recess. It was so great. It was awesome. It was an amazing early side hustle, right? Um, uh, but then I, I would say I, 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 my journey to and with Jesus pretty dramatically shifted when our local Catholic parish didn't have a youth ministry. So shout out to emerging adult uh, youth ministries, right? Um, uh, but the local Baptist church did, and they also had very pretty girls, uh, so if I'm going to be perfectly honest. Um, but it was incredibly freeing, that sort of uh, personal onus and relationship and expectation that I would engage firsthand with Scripture, with Christ, that, that I would uh, seek forgiveness but also live into this new life. Um, that had never been previously part of my discipleship, and I might have gotten there from another track anyways. Um, so I, I followed Jesus in a, in a new and more proactive and personal way, um, and I was so scared because that meant that I was going to eventually have to break it to my devout, loving Catholic parents that I was no longer part of that church of Jesus and instead part of this way of doing church. And I was so scared because uh, this was a moment of me kind of, in some sense, at least in my mind, hating my family. Um, and so I had to submit to that, and I had to go to them. I had to try to explain this thing that didn't really make a whole lot of sense to them. And they were amazingly more gracious than I ever could have hoped. And so it was actually in, in making that move and in trying to communicate that with them that I was actually given my family back to me in, in, a, in a new and very particular way. I was scared to death to do it, um, but I saw over the coming years um, uh, their faith grow uh, in a way that um, uh, was answering and, and inspired by some of the questions that I was asking and some of the ways that I was growing still within their Catholicism. Many of you know my folks that are not here today, um, but uh, it's an amazing uh, thing that can happen when, when you basically um, submit uh, all of or a major part of your life to God, uh, not knowing if you're going to get it back and you get it back tenfold. And, and that, that's my experience. That's not always the experience, and that's not a system that you can uh, juke or, like, uh, manipulate. Um, it, it's an act of faith. Uh, it's, it's going into a, a place that is unseen um, and... Uh, submitting to something that feels like a loss, um, that you might actually receive something back that's better. Um, so Jesus um, talks about family ties in the cost of the kingdom. The next thing he talks about um, is building. 
is construction. And we have a few woodworking folks in construction. This is the next of Jesus' three-pronged instruction, and he goes after the one who gets excited to start a project, and in this case, a tower. There's not that many great tower references in the Bible. Normally, I think directly of Babel, right? Um, I guess I guess there, there are a couple more positive resonances, but anyways, tower is kind of a stand-in for something, I think. But start a building project, in this case, a tower, without considering what it's actually going to take to finish the project. And as someone who normally wears a path between my home and Home Depot or Lowe's whenever I have a project happening, I really kind of relate to this. Like, it seems great, and then I never buy what I need, or I overbuy and have to bring stuff back, right? Again, he's talking to a crowd about poor planning. This happened uh, in a different setting several chapters back when he was speaking to a crowd, Jesus was, and, you know, the sermon went long, and no one considered packing a picnic, And so the first potluck was born in this scene from Luke's gospel. From the meager fare of what the disciples already had, five loaves and two fish. And it stretched out to feed more than 5,000 households. I think that's a better way to read that than 5,000 people. It's 5,000 men, so it was probably 15 plus thousand people. 5,000 households, right? And with leftovers. Overabundance. Filling baskets. I'm sure the next time this happened, there were several instant pots to kind of help feed the masses so they weren't in the sticky situation. They didn't test it too much, right? After this episode, Jesus regroups with his closest disciples. They kind of do a postmortem, see what happened, what went right, and what went wrong. And Jesus tells his disciples, all who want to come after me must say no to themselves and take up their cross daily. They must follow me. All who want to save their lives will lose them, but all who lose their lives because of me will save them. What advantage do people have if they gain the whole world for themselves, yet perish or lose their lives? Jesus appeals here in our passage today also to the pragmatist among us. Those who wake up in a cold sweat because they hadn't bought the supplies or answered the email or made the plans, or anticipated all the things, right? No one is like that here, right? Uh, Jesus knows how daunting and stressful this is, and that you wouldn't dare jump into something without considering how to finish a job. So on the one hand, to do some of the serious consideration of what this cross-bearing call might entail, Jesus is calling us to consider the cost. Don't be surprised down the road in this Jesus life that you have gotten in deeper than you expected. That it seems like way more that you, than you have signed up for. That God is requiring of you not only your material resources, but your very self. Your future. The things you secretly thought would be true of you five or ten or twenty years ago that don't seem possible now because there isn't as much as when you started or there doesn't seem like there's going to be enough. So don't step into this lightly. This is, this is kind of the, what Jesus is doing here. But on the other hand, he's also saying jump in courageously. Take up your cross and follow me. There will be enough. That is a major part of your, disciple, your discipleship. 
being apprenticed in the way, the truth, in the life of Jesus, and submitting to and reaping from God's abundance. This is strange and scary and paradoxical, but it's a truth that there is never going to seem like there is enough. It's never going to seem like it's a good time. Like it's never going to seem like there's enough to, to give generously or sacrificially to someone in need. Or it's never going to seem like it's a good time to have someone over or to have someone stay with you for an extended period of time or to adopt a child or to have a child or to, to um, invest in someone in a discipling relationship. It's never going to seem like a good time. And as much as you want to draw up the blueprints or estimate supply cost or order all the things, you mostly need to respond now. You mostly need to start building, and you need to do it brick by brick in a way that's both enthusiastic and wise, eager and determined, creative and attentive. You have to count the cost, but you have to follow through with the work with God. You're not going to be alone in this. And so the, the third thing, we had family and we had construction. The third thing, he displays this cool-headed king headed into war. The last part of this trio might be the least relatable to us. Jesus speaks of kings counting the cost of their conflict. Few of us will ever have this sort of influence over collateral damage. But we can kind of pull out a little bit of a moral here. That in the same way, any decent ruler might be willing to give in, might be even willing to lose so that they prevent carnage and loss of life before an actual meeting on the front lines, a Jesus follower must be willing to give up their all, especially as related to conflict. If you're in conflict, you have a new logic. You have a logic of the kingdom of the prince of peace, the slain lamb who takes away the sin of the world and who lives and reigns. This logic says that sacrifice is actually victory. Gentleness is power, loss is gain, and down is up, essentially. There's perhaps no better story in the Bible about someone who gets this kind of upside-down kingdom, this sort of giving it all to maybe get something, than the story of the woman Mary who entered the house of the Pharisees and broke open an expensive jar of nard, this like perfumed oil on Jesus' feet. This is in Luke 7. It says she's surrounded by a religious elite, um, and it says she wept and wiped Jesus' feet with her hair, giving up her life savings in this in this jar that is like a piggy bank broken. Like you can't you can't put it back in. It's it's over. This whole thing was a spectacle, which made these religious leaders. Uh, that Jesus was with pretty uncomfortable and frankly made some of Jesus's own like followers mad at the waste of it all. It just didn't make any sense. This is a new logic that they didn't understand. On the surface of it, her act really was irrational and irresponsible and kind of uncouth what was going on there. In a room full of men who knew how the world worked, she just didn't get it, it seemed like. But we come to find out later that perhaps more than anyone in the whole of the gospel story, she did get it. Mary's tears, her sacrifice, 
was a preparation for Jesus' death. They were actually the most appropriate and insightful recognition of who Jesus was and where he was headed. Her tears were not wasted. They were offered. They were, they were gifted to Jesus. They joined in with the tears of Jesus, which would be the basis for the salvation of the world. These were the tears at the death of Lazarus. These were the tears in the Garden of Gethsemane where maybe even for a minute Jesus didn't think that there was enough or that it was a good time. Rather than some unfeeling caricature of strength and like distorted masculinity, in fact, Jesus wept. And he wept again. He wept several times. And in this Mary story, we kind of can often jive with the logic of uh, Judas about, like, why didn't we do something with all that money for the poor? Like, that seems like a much more operational way to approach this. Like, we're, that's, that's more sensible. There's great need. And sure, the poor will always be with us, is Jesus' answer. But somehow in this moment, there's a realization that so too, Christ will always be with us. And often, in and through the poor who are among us. What seemed at the time like a drastic misread and a curse, actually became the most beautiful and poetic blessing from Mary to Jesus. Jesus through Mary. It's an artist... Um, some of you may know of uh, Japanese-American artist Mako Fujimura. And he speaks about the, these dueling forces of grace and even well-intentioned legalism that are at play in the scene. And he says, pragmatism, legalism, and greed cannot comprehend the power of ephemeral beauty, beauty that, that leaves us like tears. The opposite of beauty is not ugliness. The opposite of beauty is legalism. Legalism is hard determinism that slowly strangles out the soul. Legalism injures by giving pragmatic answers to our suffering. Legalism takes away life by forbidding the nard to be spilled onto our feet. An artist like Mary, Mary's an artist, she can intuitively give generatively and break open the oppression of this legalism. So to be a disciple of Jesus is likewise to throw our whole selves in, our life savings, our dignity, everything we have, not naively but wholeheartedly like Mary, trusting that our surrender will be rendered as a victory. That our cross-bearing in our homes, with our families, our families that are both given to us and that are chosen by us, in our neighborhoods, will be part of Jesus' kingdom bringing. None of this is wasted. It's all being used by God. So whether related to family or construction or war, the common thread seems that we might be brave enough to enter into this sort of obscure and shameful world of the cross with no sort of hope other than that that's where Jesus is. That's why we take up the cross. Not to get something, but because that's where Jesus is and we'll be met there. In some sense, we all share in the vocation of Simon of Cyrene. Do we remember Simon from late in the gospel story? Or maybe from the stations of the cross? Simon was 
pulled out of the crowd. I like to think that Simon would like just stumbled up to the crowd, like wondering what was going on, and then they just like pulled him in, like on stage before he knew what was going on. And Simon helped Jesus bear his cross, and help might not even be the most appropriate word. Simon participated in bearing Jesus' cross. We don't add to or alleviate from Christ's suffering for the sake of the world, but we might participate in it. We might become a part of it. Not above it, not far from it, like right in it. So the passage from Luke 23 notes that even in Simon's cross-bearing, always fact check on stations across where Simon is. If Simon is in front of Jesus, the artist has taken a liberty. Luke says, Simon helps Jesus bear the cross and follows behind Jesus. And behind Simon is this whole host of other followers who are mostly women and who are all weeping. Their tears are joined to the the tears of Mary, joined to the tears of Jesus. They're not wasted. The other night, I went to an event um, for Duke, um, Duke's Initiative in Theology and Arts, their 10th anniversary, and it featured poet Christian Wyman, who uh, some of you know that I really love, and he's like the perfect amount of grouchy. Uh, It's so good. Um, But he said that one of his favorite poems was, and he's allowed to say these obscure poets because he was the editor of Poetry Magazine for a, a decade. So he, he knows these things. And he, he, he said, one of my favorite poems was written by a barely known Polish poet, Anna uh, Kimienska, uh, and it's called A Prayer That Will Be Answered. Go look it up. It's wonderful. We'll post it um, when we post this recording. But the first line of this poem, A Prayer That Will Be Answered, is Lord, let me suffer much and then die. <laughs> that's a prayer that will be answered for all of us if we're daring enough to pray. And that seems so morbid. But at the end of the Christian life is actually just that. It's suffering and then dying. But then it's something new. It's abundant life. It, it, it's something out of that suffering and out of that death that's abundant and overflowing and outpouring in Christ. This answerable prayer to suffer and die is maybe the beginning of life in the kingdom. For one, it was the beginning of Christ's life in the kingdom, to suffer and die. It's also the way that we allow God to answer other prayers for us and through us. If we are, as St. Paul says, crucified with Christ so that we no longer live but Christ lives in us then like if then then the life we live in our bodies we live by faith like in and through the very faithfulness of Jesus who loved us and gives himself for us and continues to give himself for us this way life is the goal and death is the door the kingdom of God is at hand so here's your cross what Jesus is saying three ways here. It's like Waffle House, three ways, right? Here's your cross, here's your cross, here's your cross. May we, like Simon, take up our crosses and follow Jesus into this kingdom life. It's a life that is at once more available and more costly 
It's free and it's like the most expensive thing that any of us could imagine or make on our own. It's a light that's both weaker and more vulnerable and stronger and more durable than anything we could think up by ourselves. It's more real than anything we could hope for in this fragile and fragmented world. This is a life that welcomes our tears and turns them into a garment of praise. Will you all pray with me? Father, we thank you for this challenge of Jesus. That this grace, this discipleship, this call on our lives might not be cheap, um, even as it's free. Uh, Help us uh, live into that challenge. uh, Take away from us any distortions or distractions of that call. Um, Help us give ourselves to you with uh, not expecting anything in return, but trusting in you because that's, that's how Jesus lives, and that's how Jesus lives in us. Thanks for your spirit that gives us this kind of courage, your spirit that brings about new life. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.